Welcome to Leadership Decoded, a weekly podcast where through insights and interviews, I explore what good leadership looks like. I'm Dave McQueen, executive coach, speaker, and the host of this podcast. My main aim is to keep the podcast long enough to cover the subject, but short enough to create interest and without those annoying adverts. So sit back and enjoy this episode of Leadership Decoded. Now, I haven't been able to record for a while, and I should give those who are subscribers and listeners to the podcast a a good reason as to why not. So just in case you haven't been following me on socials or wherever else I post my content, my um, father has been in hospital and was he had been diagnosed with um, COVID-19. And essentially what had happened was um, the diagnosis obviously had um, and the impact that it had on him obviously affected our family. And, um, you know, we struggled. We basically had to cope with my dad being close to death um, at least twice. Um, But fortunately, just over two weeks ago, he was able to be released from hospital um, and back home safe and sound. However, in the meantime, what it had meant was um, a lot of the things that I wanted to do and around the work, it was more about focusing on him and my podcast and a lot of other things got um, put to the side. The only thing I really was doing was short blogs. But back here, and um, ironically, when I wanted to start podcasting again, this whole issue kicked off with the um, issue around George Floyd and a number of other incidents um, in the U.S., that triggered a, a racial awakening. And for that racial awakening, there was also a, a, it flipped over to not only to the UK, but across Europe and across Canada um, and all over the world where a load of protests came out supporting um, black lives and the anti-racism that a lot of black people feel all over the world where they are in, where they are not obviously in the dominant culture. Um, and, um, It involved me being involved in a number of conversations with organizations and individuals about how people could actually navigate the space and how they could, um, you know, be able to advise their staff and and people that they worked with, how they could do it better or how they could navigate the space better. And um, I released a video last week. It was called um, Centering Black Lives. And what I did as a result of this video, I wanted people to understand and see how life was and how it was difficult for professionals, uh, black professionals like myself, to be able to navigate what essentially was a really emotional and challenging time where we, for the first time in a long time, were able to be prioritized in terms of the way that we have been mistreated in the community and the way that um, the systemic racism has built up and has affected us all. Now, to make it very clear, um, there are others who will not understand this. They will use uh, concepts like all lives mattering. They will use um, terms that will be quite derogatory and not understand why this is uh, an important watershed moment and a time to have Uh, a number of people, especially in in Western countries, um, really focus on the mattering of black lives. And um, whilst in that video, I I demonstrated or was able to to highlight uh, a number of the issues and a number of the experiences that a lot of us as black individuals were facing. 
um, without having it being put into this context of victimhood or or all the other kind of pejorative terms that may be used in order to you know make people feel a lot better about themselves in um, in situations like this. What happened this time round was just global awakening hit the media, um, and there were lots of individuals and organisations who who picked up on the concern of the time and, and, and a subject that we've been discussing, many of us who work in this area around culture and leadership and around equality, <coughs> excuse me, um, all of a sudden it became in the spotlight. And uh, I realized having a lot of these conversations online, primarily on the social network that I'm on, on LinkedIn, through my newsletter and through other avenues, um, there was a time for rage. Uh, and, and, and the last couple of weeks were filled with protests, filled with me working with individuals who were trying to understand this. And, and I've said, that, you know, I've had my rage. I've still got a bit of rage, but I want to go towards resolution because it's not about blame. It's not about victimhood. This is not about all those negative terms that just kind of like keep us stuck. This is about realizing that there is a problem and how do we move it forward? And so in today's podcast, what I want to focus on is race, the last taboo. How do we have a conversation about this in our workplaces? Been inundated uh, uh, with individuals who have asked, David, is there a way of being able to talk to staff and talk to stakeholders and, and issue statements to the wider public and all this kind of stuff? And, and, and some people have done it badly. Uh, and some people have done okay. But what I wanted to do is focus today on what are the areas that we can really focus on in order to make sure that when we do have a conversation about this taboo subject, which is race, which a lot of people don't like talking about, and I understand even when I release this uh, podcast, there will still be people who don't necessarily want to talk about it or we feel very nervous about it. But for me, this is an opportunity, if you are listening, to be able to take some notes and build on it. Okay? And there are four um, key stages that I want to take individuals through on this journey. And they are what I call the four L's. And, and they say the four L's because if you take an L in basketball or, um, uh, or any kind of sport, it's, it's about taking a loss. I don't want to take this as a loss. I'm saying if you don't follow this, you'll take a loss. Um, but what this is is a suggestion around how leaders in the private, public, and third sector in the community can use some of these to start a conversation going uh, in order to be able to speak comfortably about race. So let's start with, with part one. The first L I want to focus on is love. Now, this may sound a bit cheesy, and there may be individuals who are not quite comfortable with the phrasing around love. And, and I'm not going to go into some cheesy narrative about what the world needs now is love, sweet love, even though it really does. But when you are working with individuals and spending the best part of 40, 60, 78 hours a week with those individuals, how you work with those people, there is an, there has got to be an element of love. And, and, and I'm not talking about romantic love, even though some people do get it twisted in workplace romances and what have you. I'm talking about loving your job, loving yourself, and being able to use that same energy to love people around you as well. And what I mean by loving them is treating them how they want to be treated in, in the same way that you treat yourself how you want to be treated, making sure that you give that amount of respect. And very often the reason why we have these faux pas and the reason why we have these um, spaces where we can't have conversations is because people aren't really reflective on the amount of love that they wish to receive, which will be quite positive, and in turn, how they would um, send that out. I think there are two phrases that really stick really close for me. One is uh, namaste, uh, I think it's Sanskrit, is it Indian? 
um, where the God in me sees the God in you. And the other one, which is um, Zulu, Sabwana, which is mean, I see you, I see you. Uh, two of those phrases are, um, even when you interpret them, in, interpret them into English, they're, they're very difficult, but they come from a place of love. I see you. I may not necessarily um, agree or understand the full concept of what you're doing, but I actually see you. And so when I'm looking to make some kind of resolution, when I'm looking to kind of get some uh, uh, a way of understanding or having sympathy or having empathy, it's coming from a place of love. And often we realize that the differences that we have within our cultures and the differences that we have when we are um, trying to work across cultures and work with people who are sometimes very different from us and sometimes quite similar, is that we don't think of it in a loving way. And, and, and as much as I look around and try to find um, the, the, the conversations that people are having in this leadership space around how we really tackle this, very few of them actually talk about love. And love's important. That's how we really connect. Uh, and it's not some ethereal kind of like, uh, again, as I said, hippy-dippy thing that's off to the side. It's us being really concerned about how we love ourselves, showing ourselves some self-love, and then being able to love other people. And we don't necessarily have to like them, okay? We know we probably have family and, and friends that we don't necessarily like, but we can still extend love. We can still show compassion. We can still show empathy. We can still be there for them. That's what I mean when I talk about love. And so for me, the second part of um, this uh, part of love is creating safe spaces. So for those people who are um, literally... Um, uh, thinking about how do we really make this happen? How do we really move this forward? Past the black squares on social media, past the the statements uh, that are that are sent out to say that you know um, we're we're dealing with black black lives and we are sympathising with what happens or whatever kind of racial grouping we have to deal with, whether it's now the present one we're talking about focusing on black lives or any other kind of racial conversation we need to have in the future, it's about creating a safe space. And that's an extension of love. You cannot have a, a, a productive and you cannot have a, a, a long or sustainable um, uh, resolution or space of safety, psychological safety for your work people unless you create a safe space. And, and that means that everybody should be able to come to the table and feel that their voice is valid. It doesn't need to be vital, um, but it's definitely... it's it's um, valid because it's important that we hear that sometimes we're going to have differences of opinion and it's valid that you get your voice out people shouldn't be cancelled or shut down or told that their view doesn't matter yes there are going to be some times where people say things that may be out of place and if you are an individual that's part of a group that has been oppressed you are probably going to take that uh, a bit stronger than somebody who doesn't even realize that and when i say oppressed i mean in the, in the sense that you are disadvantaged because of your race and i'll come to that a bit more but creating those safe spaces and whether we are doing them online in groups, whether we're doing them face to face, whether we're doing them through any kind of internal communication as an organization, it's incredibly important that we create safe spaces where we set the boundaries. And those boundaries means that we're going to have a very honest and open conversation. And, and while we're having that conversation, we want everybody in there to feel that they have a voice, that they can speak, but they also are um, able to understand that they will be listened to as well. That's just as important. So creating that safe space is important. And I know a number of consultants like myself, when we go and we work with organizations, that's one of the key things we want to do. Let's talk robustly. Let's talk directly, but make sure that we have and create a safe space. Okay. And so the third part of this, um, uh, this uh, conversation around love is around facilitation. 
And this is one of the most difficult parts. So I am currently involved in running some coaching sessions and some webinars with a number of um, organizations, um, famous name brands that you will know, but I'm not necessarily telling you who they are, who have asked me to come in and to facilitate some conversations to start with um, uh, virtual away days and webinars and workshops around making sure that we or, or the, 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 um, the colleagues themselves equip themselves with the tools and the ability to be able to have a conversation around race. Going back to that point, as I said, about being able to make sure that we, we speak with love and that we love ourselves and that we create a safe space, a psychologically safe space so that it's a reflection of the values that you talk about as your uh, organization. It's a reflection of the purpose, the why your actual organization is um, doing what it does and even why it sent out the various statements that other people have, you know, that organizations have sent out. And it's, it's also important that when you have a facilitator, you realize that the facilitator is always going to be emotionally detached from the company. So we don't have that emotional investment that individuals who are in the company are, are having that conversation about. We do get it because I know for me as a black facilitator, I will be able to experience, I would have experienced some of the, the things around racism. I know what it's like when somebody tells you that sticks and stones may hurt your uh, may hurt your bones, but words will never hurt you. But when you hear somebody calling you a nigger or a coon, or when you hear somebody passing a derogatory term, and it might be not just the black people, it might be somebody calling somebody a packy or a chinky or a honky or all the other derogatory terms that may come, the racial epithets that may come across the board. You want to be in a space where somebody who has a sense of what that's about can be able to facilitate it. If you've got no idea around that, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to, um, to facilitate something like this. Let's be very honest. In the same way that I know that I will not have the imp impact of being able to, to facilitate a conversation around gender, specifically when it works towards um, the, the disadvantages or the lack of privilege that women has, unless I'm co-facilitating with a woman. Uh, in the same way that I wouldn't go in trying to facilitate a, a, a tough conversation around um, sexuality, uh, whether it's um, LGBT+, whether it's talking hetero, whatever variation it is, it's, I wouldn't be able to do that unless I was co-hosting with somebody who was not heterosexual. And so in this space, for me, when you have got facilitators who either come in directly or they're working with your organization, it's very important to know that they have an understanding of what they're talking about. And that facilitator will be detached from the organization. And here's a point that um, I think is really important for organizations to realize, you've got to invest in this. Too often there are um, organizations who will say, you know, we, you, you know, we'd like to catch up and have a quick chat or we'd like to pick your brain or, you know, we, we'd like to see if you've got some ideas around this. That's fine. But when you are honestly thinking about anything that improves your culture, you've got to invest in it. You can't be going out there telling people that you don't have a budget. You can't be going out there telling people that you don't have money because when you do that, you disrespect the individuals in that organization who are being affected by the fact that they can't talk about race, who are being affected by the fact that they may be disadvantaged because of hiring practices, because of the, the ability to be able to move up into an organization. And we have so many stats out there where we do see racial disadvantages when people go up the, the actual career ladder. And to be able to have an open and honest conversation about that needs somebody who can come in and have the skill to facilitate it with a decent budget, with a follow-on conversation as to how this can make your organization better. So that's the first bit for me, is being able to understand this concept of love, um, being able to have uh, conversations that reflect a sense of self-love and the love that we want to be able to show to people around us. Might sound really hippy-chicky, but it's important because that's how we as humans actually survive.
The second part I want to talk about is language. And, and that is where a lot of this stuff can get very, very hairy. That's where a lot of it can become a massive challenge for individuals is around the language. So let me give you an example. I was talking to a couple of my friends in the week and we were having a conversation about the term white privilege. Now, as a black man growing up, uh, I've heard this term white privilege since 19, I think it was 1989, I'm going to say. It was, there's an essay called White Privilege Unpacking the Knapsack. And Peggy Morris, I believe her name is, she wrote this essay and she was talking about the, the concept of institutional racism in, in the USA, particularly. And, and she was speaking about the fact that the society is guarded in such a way that if you are white or have a sense of what whiteness is, and that's the, the lighter skin, the more Nordic you are, the, 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 and all these systems that came about as a result of, of, of or identity since slavery, um, since um, post-slavery, Jim Crow, and in the wider empire, British empire, the colonial system, there were certain things that were put in place that were white is the best. That's what we need to aspire to. So even when you think of the way that the, the words that are in a lot of the national anthems, uh, whether it's the UK, Scottish, the, the US, a lot of that is couched in white privilege because you think about terms like slavery, never will be in slavery, um, the way that the, the language is to, used to, to look down on other people. That's when you understand a concept of white privilege. There's a superiority around racism. There's a superiority around the slavery system that benefits white people. Now, it's so important when we have this conversation to recognize that it is not when we talk about white privilege, it's not saying that every single white person is born with advantage. No, we're talking about a system. For example, if you went in a, a dominant country in the West, Canada, USA, heck, even Brazil and, and Europe, and you went to look for flesh-colored plasters or flesh-colored tights, I can guarantee you, as a person who's darker, that word flesh would literally be re relating to somebody who had a lighter skin, somebody above Pantene 440. And so it's important for individuals to recognize with that language, what white privilege is, is not saying that it's about an individual white person being this, ooh, this archetypal racist right winger. No, it's about a system that has advantage, has advantage to white society as a whole. So therefore, when you think about uh, arrest rates, uh, young black individuals, I know specifically in the UK, are nine times more likely to get arrested for the same offense as a white person. Um, we are three to four times more likely to get stopped and searched when we are driving in our cars. There are assumptions, and this is, the, this is the interesting thing, and I'll talk about it in a bit, but there are assumptions that come with being not part of that white dominant culture that will affect the way that you have access to finance, the way you have access to um, education, uh, recruitment. And, and whilst for individuals, this may seem like privilege or, or even being called out to say white because you, people aren't usually, especially if you're in the dominant culture, you're not used to that label. Sometimes it can come as an affront. But the conversation piece for me here and the language you use is to ask people, when you say white privilege, what exactly do you mean? And for those who are using the word white privilege, for you to understand what you mean as well, it shouldn't be a point where we are accusing people, but understanding what's systemic and what's systematic and how it has affected people of color, people who aren't white, because I hate that phrase, people of color, but people who aren't white. Okay. And that's where the language piece comes in. It's quite important. So let me flip out to language and talk about racism. So racism for a lot of people, and we'll have differences around that, but for me personally, racism is about, is about it being systemic. Wherever you go in the world, if you are being treated differently because of the color of your skin or whatever other classification people have around race, and you are disadvantaged because of that, you have a lack of access to, to systems, and the, um, and the way that you are treated within the, the criminal justice system, in schooling, in society, those things, that's racism. 
Now we can have biases. And those biases are where we assume somebody behaves in a certain way because of their racial background, um, whether they be black, white, Asian, whatever it is. Um, there, are, there are assumptions around that. The problem is not so much about having that bias in your mind. It's about whether you have that sense of belief and you have that belief and then you put into system or you put into place a body of behavior that then ties into the system. So if, for example, I'm walking down the road and there's two or three of us uh, black men walking down the road and you systematically walk across the road because you can't trust black men. And I'm not saying that may be the case, but if that's your thought, that for me is a part of systemic racism. Some people may say it's only about safety, but I'm saying to you, if you are led to believe that three black men walking down the road and we could be professionals, we're probably earning more money than you, probably got bigger houses and nicer cars. But if you cross the road because you're afraid of this bias or stereotype that you have, that's what tips into systemic racism. And vice versa, whichever group you come from in your dominant culture, and when you're treating people differently because of their, that's where the racial bias comes in and that's where it's systemic. And having a language around what um, uh, contributes to biases and what contributes to racism is really important because we're never going to move forward unless we agree what that whole thing is about racism and bias. And this requires some simple, really challenging conversations and not shouting, not arguing, but some simple and robust conversations around that perception of what race is. And often individuals who are the, more the, 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 I don't want to use the word victims, but people who are affected most by racial bias and racial prejudice, they will tell you their story. And it's important to listen to that. But in the same time, the individuals who have been oppressed, they, it's important to listen to those who don't see it that way. So, for example, as I said, there are lots of, of really good friends of mine who are white, who had never heard of the term white privilege before about two weeks ago. For us, and I know for me and many other black people in our, our culture, that's something we've heard for years. Why? Because we've always been navigating or trying to navigate in that space. White privilege is when we are told by our parents and by individuals in our, our organization, uh, sorry, in our families and communities, that we need to work two to three times as hard as a white person to get somewhere. That's white privilege reversed. Because at the end of the day, we're told that we can't be a good person unless we work twice as hard as somebody who's got a lighter skin tone. That's negative, that's detrimental, and that ties back into racism. Because you're going to start feeling that you're inferior, and the only way that you can achieve something is to work as hard as, and try to be like a white person. And when I talk about racism, I think it's very important here as well to recognize that a lot of anti-black racism is not only from white people. It's also within what's called the wider BAME community. I know as a black person, I've received very horrible racist attitudes from people from the South Asian community. Um, to a lesser extent from the Southeast Asian community here as well. And let me flip it back. Have I ever used derogatory language that has been used towards any other racial group? Of course, yes, I have. But part of the whole point of being a, part of a wider friendship group is to say, look, if at the end of the day we've had a lot of this affront, it's about shaping a language and, and recognizing and checking our language and keeping each other accountable. So when derogatory terms are used, how do we flip it back out? How do we make that change? And how do we make sure specifically as this podcast focuses on, how do we make sure at the end of the day, we choose our language wisely when we're thinking about changing it in the world of work? My last one, uh, sorry, my third one is about um, listening. Now, I've talked about this many times, so I'm not going to um, labor the point too much. But I think that, no, I think, I actually believe, let's move away from think. I believe that listening is incredibly important for this process. Active listening listening to what the other person is saying, taking in the information and parking our own judgments, parking our own experiences and parking our own effrontery and, and ego. 
what is that person saying to me? Going back to that point of love, let me love on that person to understand where they're coming from and let me not just react to them, but let me hear what they're saying. Let me not label it victimhood. Let me not label it as playing the race card. Let me not label it as this person's being aggressive or being um, uh, that, that, that they're not happy. So therefore I'm gonna block them because I don't want them on my board because they might be a problem. I don't want them facing my stakeholders. So really about listening and seeing how you can leverage your talent from people from different cultures. And this is for everybody, because it's going to be very tense. There are going to be some people who are going to go, well, what is the problem? Oh, you know, well, you're, you're only going to get in, a, in an organization, and of course you're not going to get black leaders. You only represent 3% of the population. But then when you come to somewhere like London, where the uh, black, Asian, and other ethnic minorities comprise nearly 40%, then it shifts. Why is it still different when we're thinking about those, um, those organizations in a place where there is a high density and population of people from black, Asian and other uh, minority ethnic backgrounds? I hate using that phrase, but for the purpose of the podcast, I just want you to understand that. And then it's about asking open questions, asking a question, not leading questions, but asking open questions to see if you can get more information, to tackle your own assumptions, to tackle your cognitive biases. Start asking the question, because sometimes you may assume that a person is racist and they've got no idea what you're talking about. And likewise, sometimes somebody may perceive or, or see you as racist and you have no idea until you start to ask the question, you start to make the assumptions. And rather than come at a point of accusation, you start to make a list and start to observe it and you start to listen. And once you start to listen, and this is a gift that I know uh, counsellors and, and, and coaches have, be okay in sitting with your discomfort. Some of the conversations you're going to hear, you're not going to like. But be okay with sitting with that in discomfort. It is going to be a bit uncomfortable. And that's okay. Sometimes in order to be able to move forward, and for those of us who work in change, you know in order to move forward, sometimes you're going to have to deal with some stuff that's very uncomfortable. But you still have to be able to listen to the individual in front of you if we're going to move that forward. Let's move to the last L, leverage. So now we've had these fantastic conversations. We've had these away days. We've sent out these statements. We've produced, we, uh, you know, we produced our ethnic or diversity pay reports or different reports. We've done all this stuff. We've had the symposiums. We've had the town halls. We've had a conversation with the ERGs. How do, how do we make it work? It's by being able to set down or, or have a conversation as to how we move this forward. What does it mean to feel that you belong in an organization? What does it mean for an individual who hasn't felt heard before, who's been too afraid to speak out, to now say, I'd love to be able to have a conversation with my boss, my line manager, my leader, my people in my team about some of the issues that I have and being able to resolve it. That's what it's about. It's about leverage. How do we move that forward? How do we move it forward to be able to treat each other wisely? How do we use these employment or affinity or business resource groups where people have connected on the basis of race because they felt that they probably weren't heard in the wider culture? How do we use this to shape an even stronger culture going forward? And then for senior leaders at a top level, how do you take this information and make it part of your whole culture? How do you make it so that your values that you've always been talking about, the, 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 the respect for all workforce people, the integrity, how do you make sure that now you've had these conversations and now you've sat down with these facilitators and planners and, 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 and worked on being able to open this conversation up and find a way forward? How do you embed those shared lessons and that learning into a strategy and into your culture? How do you make sure that people still feel honored as a result of having, having done this conversation and gone through the whole process? How do you make sure that people don't feel that, oh my God, because I've spoken now, that this might affect me on my performance. It might knock me down. It might really adversely affect me. No one's looking here for blame. 
What we're looking for is a way of being able to move this forward where certain demographics and groups can feel right because they're not, you know, there are some who may be considered the model minority, heads down, get on with it, don't even, you know, worry about anything. And on the other hand, there are people who are gonna go, I'm not gonna take this crap. I'm gonna push back against it. And they're seen as the aggressors or the, 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 tough, the tough to handle ones. But these are the same kind of individuals who you hire that can bring in really good business. These are the same individuals that can negotiate well with stakeholders, whether it's a private, public or third sector organization. And if you miss out on the opportunity of being having of having this conversation, your organization is poorer for it. And maybe you don't care, but there is an opportunity to be able to have this conversation at such a time as this, when it's raw now, when everybody is talking about it, when it's out in the open, when we are looking at these traumatic images online and we're seeing these protests and we're recognizing that there is a moment of unrest, we can always, and we can definitely think about how do we move this forward? And what's even more important around leverage is what are the lessons that you learn in your organization and in your industry that you can share? If you are working in, a, in, in, a, in, in the legal um, profession and there are other organizations around where you can share best practice, in the same way you do that in, in, in terms of any other area of your business, you can do that specifically when it comes to race. It could be law, it could be professional services, it could be construction, it could be any industry that you have. It could be in the national healthcare, it could be in government, all these conversations and shared lessons, when they are put together, it's about being able to move it forward because when we have those shared lessons in humanity, we go past individual egos of leaders. We go past individual people who just want to shut down a conversation and go, look, this has worked for a lot of other people. And though we may think that we're great and we're far apart and we're set apart, these are some lessons that have been learned really well from this company or from this industry. Let's share this thing and let's look at how we can work on it better. The McGregor report came out a number of years ago where they were looking at uh, work, stuff in the workplace. For example, a lot of leaders, almost finished here, but a lot of leaders realize that if you really want to have equity and equality, one of the best ways you can do that is to be very, very open and transparent about your mentorship and your sponsorship and how you are able to approach individuals who come from underrepresented backgrounds to be able to get to that leadership table. That's it. Mentorship and sponsorship. But of course, in being able to get to that place, you've got to get past any cognitive biases, any subconscious or conscious biases that you have, or many assumptions that you have about people who come from different backgrounds from yourself. And for me, I believe that organizations should never miss a trick. Yes, it's the last taboo, but we are able to move forward from that. And this should be an opportunity for organizations, wherever you are, to take it to the next level. And that should not be an opportunity missed. I hope that's helped. And in some ways, again, whether it's working with somebody like myself or others who are working in this space about culture development and leadership change and equality, don't let this opportunity go past. Don't just use it as a way of, of as a marketing exercise. Look at it as the way that you want to treat your fellow human with love. I gave you those four tips. Love, language, listening, it was leverage. I'm not necessarily saying I have all the answers, but hey, it's my podcast and I just want to be able to tap in and speak to the leaders and the people who listen to this to understand how we can move this forward. That's it. So thank you for listening to this week's episode. And I hope it has helped someone in leadership or who can affect and influence leadership to have a sense about why it's okay to talk about race as long as you set the right atmosphere and you have the right intention and you think about ways how you're going to move forward and leverage it. 
Um, I appreciate those who are sharing this podcast. And for those of you who are watching it online, as well as being able to, because I'm changing this up now, I'm, I mean, given the, the, the podcast, I'm doing it not only on where you can get your podcast on Spotify and iTunes and Google Play and the others, but I'm putting this on YouTube as well, so I can have both the video as well as the audio. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go ahead and share or comment and rate on, on whatever one of those platforms you get this on. And, and I appreciate the time that you've taken to both listen and give feedback on this. And I look forward to having you tune into the next episode of Leadership Decoding. And until next week, stay safe and take care. And thanks for tuning in. Much love.